0: Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put it in every city. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You're spies, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man, we're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It's as I said to you, you're spies, by this... You shall be tested. By the, by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there's truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you're spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you're in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers my money's been put back here it is in the mouth of my sack at this their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying what is this that god has done to us when they came to jacob their father in the land of canaan they told him all that had happened to them saying the man the lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land but we said we're honest men we've never been spies we're 12 brothers sons of our father one is no more, and the youngest is to stay with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for your, the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I'll deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As he emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hand, and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Let's bow and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father, we pray that you would humble us to receive your Word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you and your glory, your faithfulness, that we would hear your promises and be reminded that you are a God who makes promises and you keep them, that you've shown us that, and your son Jesus, and sending him to die on the cross to pay for sin. God, you were faithful in raising him from the dead. And we pray this morning that you would fill us with hope in Jesus. Lord, pray you'd help me to preach faithfully. Lord, I thank you for the honor it is to preach your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach what is true in your word, that Jesus would be exalted among us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. When's the last time that you felt guilty about something? We live in a society that may tell you, well, you don't need to feel guilty about anything. We may hear a lot about guilt-free living because guilt can, can feel uncomfortable. Now, sometimes we might feel guilty over just trivial things like having that piece of chocolate cake at 11 o'clock at night before you go to bed. and You know, you shouldn't, but it looks too good. That's what I did last night. Sometimes we may feel guilty, and it's not because of anything we did wrong. And maybe as Christians, sometimes we wrongly feel guilty even over sin we've already repented of, that it doesn't honor God when we walk in, in guilt. For sin we've already confessed to God and been, we've repented of, that we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's actually a step of faith that we've taken that guilt to Jesus and are reminded we no longer walk in it, that Christ has taken that guilt for us. Can, can Feeling guilty, though, can it actually be a good thing? Going to be something that's helpful in our lives. We'll see this uh, theme of guilt this morning in the story of Joseph's brothers when Joseph gets to confront his brothers, his ten brothers, about their guilt. And the spoiler alert: yes, guilt can be a good thing. You see, there's a godly sorrow that needs to come into our, our lives, where we've understood that our sin is against God and against Him. Alone, a guilt that would lead us to repent of our sin and go to the only place where we can place that guilt for it to be taken care of at the feet of Jesus. We'll see this morning that living a faithful life and guilt, they actually go together. So we need to properly understand where a well placed guilt is according to God's Word. We see that faithful living comes from repentance. And a godly sorrow must come before repentance. This morning, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, we see another living illustration of God's faithfulness. And the main idea that I want you to see this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The main idea, God's good providence shows us His faithfulness and shapes us to be faithful. God's good providence shows us His faithfulness and shapes us to be faithful. Somebody asked me a while ago, well, you know, when you're preaching the life of Joseph, how do you keep every sermon from just sounding the same? Well, at some level, we just keep seeing lesson after lesson about God's good providence. And it is good for us to be reminded of God's providence, that God's providence simply tells us God is good and God is in control. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, That all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And each episode, each scene that we see in the life of Joseph, in the book of Genesis, teaches us a little bit, uh, something a little bit different about God's good providence. This morning, we see how God's good providence demonstrates his faithfulness. That though Joseph's brothers intended to do him harm and meant all they did to him for evil, that God was at work the whole time working for Joseph's good. That God shows himself to be faithful in his good providence and he shapes his people to look like him, to be If you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 41. We're going to be at the very end of the chapter this morning. If you want to use that pew Bible this morning right in front of you, take that. The best way to follow along in the sermon is to follow along in a copy of the Bible, of God's Word. So if you need to use that right in front of you, turn to page 35 in that pew Bible, and then you can take that pew Bible home with you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give that Bible to you. We're going to be looking at the end of Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 46, and then we're going to cover all of Genesis 42 this morning. A little bit of context because we've been taking Genesis semester by semester here, so we just kicked off our fall semester and into the end of the year here a few weeks ago. And in our time in Genesis, starting back to the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2 and chapter 3, we see that sin and death, they came into the world through one family, through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, created in God's image, created in relationship with God, they're enjoying his presence without sin in the Garden of Eden. We see back in Genesis chapter 3 that sin, and therefore death, came into the world through them, through their disobedience to God, by by eating of the forbidden tree. And in that act, they turned away from God's loving authority over them, rejecting his loving authority. Therefore, they were kicked out of the garden and driven away from the presence of God. But we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God did not leave them without hope. Right as he drove them away from his presence, he gave them hope that there would be one who would come from the line of the woman, from the line of Eve, this serpent crusher, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And that's what the the story of Genesis has been tracing Where would this promised one of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, come from? Which leads us to a family we've been tracking with here for the last few months. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a family that God would use to redeem all that was lost in Eden. This was a family that would walk by faith. A family that would become the people, the people of God, and show the nations who the one true God is. Indeed, the family that would bless the nations, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their family. Now here we've been tracing with Jacob's twelve sons. The people of Jacob or the people of of Israel. They were God's people, descendants, for Abraham would come through them. Kings were promised to come from them. Nations promised to be blessed through them. But at this point in the story, that could be hard to imagine. Things aren't looking too good amongst the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph, the only son in whom we see that the Lord was with him, the only one walking by faith, well, he's separated from his family. He's living in Egypt. He's far from them. Uh, they've deceived, the 10 brothers deceived their father into thinking he's dead. And what we've seen from the 10 sons is unfaithfulness, ungodly character. They've been living all these years with a family secret. A family secret that they sold their brother into slavery, living with this family secret. No reason to think that they felt remorse over this yet. No reason to think there was any repentance. We haven't seen any interest in God from them, but that changes in this chapter when this unlikely opportunity comes for Joseph to confront his brothers. How would God use this family? This family that was a mess to bring salvation and to bring redemption to the nations? Well, first, they needed to be transformed. They needed to live godly lives. The family needed reconciliation. Forgiveness was needed, but before any of that could come, they needed to be confronted with their sin. they needed to be true repentance. And this part of the story shows that the famine in the land was not the greatest threat To Jacob's family. Sure, their lives were in danger. They wouldn't be able to eat. They would physically die, but as serious as famine was, that wasn't the greatest threat to Jacob's family. Their unfaithfulness was their greatest threat. Now, you and I don't know famine. Think about how quickly we can get food even when we leave from this place. I know Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, but there are a lot of other places you can get food. Probably within 10 minutes of leaving this place, you can start to eat. We don't know what famine is like. We don't feel that threat, but I would suggest to you the threat of unfaithfulness, which is the true threat we see in this story is a threat that if you haven't dealt with that yet, I hope you deal with that today. Your unfaithfulness to God, sinning against him, living in a broken relationship, rejecting his authority is a matter that you need to understand and that you can attend to today and for all those who already put their faith in jesus christ who've already repented of their sin and been reconciled to the god that we've sinned against may we be reminded today of god's great grace that he's faithful he alone is faithful and we can praise him that he has shaped us to live like him and to look like him as his faithful people well as we make our way through this passage of chapter 41 the end of it and chapter 42, I want you to see three scenes of faithfulness. Three scenes of faithfulness is how we'll break up our outline this morning. At the end of chapter 41, starting in verse 46, the first scene is what we see here, verses 46 through 57 faithfulness in prosperity. Faithfulness in prosperity. Now, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers at 17 years of age. Here in verse 46, we see that he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 13 years of waiting, 13 years since his brother sold him into slavery, with additional years waiting in prison. Joseph's humiliation came before his exaltation. But while he was still separated from his family and in a foreign land, by God's good grace in his providence, Joseph was taken from prison to a place of honor, entering the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That was the world power at the time. He was second in command under Pharaoh. In other words, Joseph was on the way up. Yet his exaltation did not change him for the worse. Well, consider how often we're tempted in prosperity. It can be easy. I don't want to say easy about this we can become more aware of our need to pray in adversity it can still be difficult to pray in adversity we might become more aware of our need to pray in adversity but what about when things are going well what about when you feel physically great it might be easier to pray or maybe more aware of praying when you're sick when you've got a broken bone it's difficult to get around but when you wake up and you're feeling great you just got done with that workout you may feel self-sufficient Think about how prosperity can come with its own set of temptations. We can understand how maybe you, you come across money, you earn a lot of money, maybe you experience achievement and accomplishment, and temptation can come in subtly to grow prideful, to start to think that you're a big deal, to start to think that, well, your, your intellect has gotten you pretty far in life, to start to think that those good grades and the high GPA, well, that's just because you have worked really hard, which is true. You don't get a high GPA by not working hard, but who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you the intellectual capacity to learn and to understand? Who gave you the physical health to be able to attend class? Who gave you the money to be able to pay for that schooling and that education? Who gave you the ability to get up and drive yourself to work? Who gave you the car to get there or the mode of transportation to get there? Who gave you the opportunity to get that job in the first place? Sometimes it's more difficult for us to trust God in prosperity. We may be tempted to be unthankful in prosperity. Even though we've had a lot, we think, well, if I just have a lot, if God just answers these prayers, well, then I'll be thankful. If God will just give me a husband or wife, well, then I'll be thankful. God will just give me that promotion at work, well, then I'll be thankful. If I could just stop living check to check, and my bank account had more margin, well then. I'd be thankful. Brothers and sisters, what happens when we achieve those places? Oftentimes, we'll find ourselves still complaining, still unhappy, still battling with discontent because worldly objects are not able to satisfy what it is we long for. You see, prosperity often brings a different set of temptations into our life. And what we see with Joseph, he's an example to us here. He proved to be faithful in both prosperity and in adversity. He proved to be faithful in Potiphar's house and then later in prison when he was wrongfully accused and wrongfully imprisoned. He wasn't overtaken by bitterness and anger. He worked faithfully. And here in a place of honor in Egypt, he remained faithful. He was the same faithful man on prosperity that he was in adversity. We see this faithfulness highlighted in two ways at the end of this chapter. Number one, through his diligent work. And number two, through the naming of his sons. In both of those, we see his faithfulness. So first off, Joseph's faith was in God's word, and so he acted faithfully. He was so sure of what God had told him concerning Pharaoh's dream that he set into action with a plan. He was faithful. He was the wise and discerning man that Pharaoh needed to carry out this important task of preparing for the coming famine. And we see this faithfulness as he gave himself to diligent work. To prepare for this coming famine, to store up food in those seven plentiful years. You see, the future of Egypt and the future future of Israel and the surrounding nations depended on this work. We read in verse 49 And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. If that language, like the sand of the sea, if that sounds familiar. It's because it is. That's language from God's promise to Abraham about the descendants he was promised. That You wouldn't be able to count his descendants. They would outnumber the stars in the sky. This plentiful grain, those seven years of, of work, would play a key role in providing for those very offspring. This would be the grain that would keep the people of Israel alive. Now, notice that this language is used right before we read of Joseph's offspring, of two sons being born to Joseph. Now, we lost, last saw uh, last week in verse 45, Joseph, he was given an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. And you might have thought, wait a minute, is, is Joseph selling out? I mean, the Egyptians were a godless people. They didn't worship the one true God. You might have thought, wait a minute. like He's, he's supposed to be distinct. He's from Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, and now he's taking an Egyptian name, and he's not supposed to intermarry, right? I mean, he, he just took an Egyptian wife. as something wrong here. Well, I would contend in this point, what we see from Joseph's life is not that he was selling out. He certainly was in a unique place. He was under the rule of Pharaoh. And I think even the call of intermarrying, what it had more to do with even in the old covenant, certainly in the new, what it had more to do with was a theological concern. It wasn't an ethnocentric concern. It wasn't a concern about only marrying within your own ethnic nation. It was a concern theologically for worship, that a worshiper of God would marry a true worshiper of God. And what would often happen, what we see in the story of Genesis, when the people of God would intermarry from amongst the pagan nations, you'd see them cease to worship God. Well, that doesn't happen with Joseph. In fact, we see faithfulness continue on. So clearly he's not selling out here in this story. In fact, in the naming of his sons, what kind of names does he give them? Not Egyptian names, Hebrew names. He gives them Hebrew names. Manasseh, which means God has made me forget. Both of these names, they speak to what God has done in his life. Manasseh, what God has made me forget. His second son, Ephraim, his name means God has made me fruitful he's filled with joy. God provided for him sons. He went through hard periods of time, trials, suffering, yet he's not angry or bitter. He receives this son Manasseh with joy. He professes this this, uh, faithfulness of God and his second son Ephraim that God has made him fruitful. Both of these names recognize God's faithfulness to his promise. He's continuing on in faithful living. God And his good providence has brought Joseph joy and fruitfulness. Well, in his prosperity, Joseph remained faithful. But I wonder what that looks like in your life, Christian. How often does prosperity make you less alert to God's Word? How often do you find yourself in prosperity being less urgent in obedience to God's Word? When the sun is shining... When things are going well, what's your prayer life like? When things when you when seem to be self-sufficient and things are going well at work or at, at home, how urgent do you understand it is to be devoted to God's Word and prayer? You know, one way to remain faithful in prosperity is to regularly offer up prayers of thanksgiving. That's something I've heard commended to do at the end of the day is to think back through those blessings that you've received throughout the day and to thank God for those blessings. That, that practice of regularly considering, what did God bless me with today? And maybe it wasn't even like uh, that great of a day. We often go around at my dinner table and the conversation we have at my dinner table is uh, share something from today that was uh, hard and something that was fun. Uh, and sometimes we'll go around and it can be hard to think of something that was fun. Things were just hard. But even in those hard days, there's something we can think about God providing for us. Maybe He just gave you the endurance to get through that hard day that you had. So at the end of the day, you can still thank Him. God, thank you. It's hard to see the good in this day, but you were in this day, and therefore I know some good is coming from this. But one way to remain faithful in prosperity is to pray and to regularly offer prayers. Give God credit and glory for your physical health. For any material prosperity that you know, give God thanks for that you know, how often do you stop to thank God for what you have? We are invited to ask God. Believe me, we do that in our pastoral prayer to lift up our needs, but we should also thank God. It's one way to to walk in humility and prosperity. Another way to remain faithful, be generous in your giving. If you want to be faithful in prosperity, be generous in your giving. The apostle Paul commends this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. So there's freedom in your giving. And I'm talking about financial giving. I'm talking about financial giving to this local church. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's what Paul's talking about, giving to your local church, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you, want, if you don't want to build your life merely on the material prosperity that you've received, well. We'll be faithful to give it, to give it back to the Lord. Giving cheerfully comes from recognizing what do you have that you have not received from God Himself. Everything you have comes from Him and it is a joy to give it back. You see, God's good providence had shaped Joseph to be faithful and to be thankful and prosperity and so it should be for us, Christian, that as we walk by faith, if we're going to grow In our faith, we need to ask God for help to remain thankful and prosperity. And so we should thank Him. Well, in verse 53, just as Joseph said it would, the years, the seven years of plenty, they came to an end, and the years of famine came. Notice the famine came to all lands, but only in Egypt did they have bread through this faithful work for seven years. And the chapter ends with the nations coming to Egypt to be saved from the famine. Egypt was the stage God chose to show that salvation and deliverance come only from him. In other words, Joseph is right where God wants him. In God's good providence, God has shown his faithfulness to place Joseph through all those years of hardship to place him in a spot where he can bring God the most glory and do good to those around him. Well, there's a second scene of faithfulness that we see here in Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 25. That's the second part of our outline. Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 25. Scene 2, a recognition of unfaithfulness. A recognition of unfaithfulness. Seven years of plentiful harvest have passed. The seven years of famine have started not only in Egypt, but famine also came to the land of Canaan. That's where Jacob and his family are. In other words, the people of Israel are running out of food. And Jacob, still being the leader of the family, sends his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. But we see in verse 4 that he held his son Benjamin back. So he sends 10 sons down. Benjamin was the other son along with Joseph that Jacob had with his favorite wife, Rachel. While Joseph was the son that Jacob had previously favored, it seems like Benjamin has taken his place. And holding him back likely revealed that Jacob did not trust these ten brothers. I mean, they'd already gone off, and and somehow Joseph didn't come back, and he thought Joseph was dead because they deceived him. He wasn't about to lose Benjamin. So when the family needs food, he sends those ten sons by themselves. He keeps Benjamin back. Now we get the detail in verse 6 that Joseph now was the governor of the land. Again, exalted to a high place. It just so happens as the governor of the land, according to God's good providence, in the midst of droves of people coming to Egypt to buy grain, Joseph crosses paths with his ten brothers. Again, that wouldn't have been easy to do. You can imagine all sorts of people coming. Joseph, in charge of all kinds of servants administering and distributing this grain, it just so happens, according to God's providence and His good plan, that they cross paths there. Now, when the brothers approach, we read there in verse 6, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. They don't recognize Joseph. Now consider he was 17 years old The last time they saw him. He was 37 now. 13 years had passed and then 7 years of plenty. Well, how different did you look 20 years ago? Some of us wouldn't be able to recognize one another from 20 years ago. You you add to that what's going on here. Uh, Joseph's in a position of authority. He was donned in an Egyptian guard. He was even speaking the Egyptian language. We see later we get the detail there was an interpreter helping them communicate. He was clean-shaven at that point, wearing this royal garb. They thought their brother probably was dead. If he was alive, they wouldn't expect him to be in this spot, in this type of authority. They didn't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. Now, would this be this moment they're waiting for? Reconciliation, like hugging like this embrace like i've missed you guys it's me joseph check out what god did for me look at these clothes i'm clean shaven like i'm here to help you guys out is this the moment we were waiting for of reconciliation no joseph acts like he doesn't know them he treats his brothers like strangers i mean why is he just icing them out like you all are dead to me is he about to exact revenge on them Is this the moment he's finally waiting for, to seek out vengeance against his brothers for the wrong that they did to him? Is he bitter at them? Well, no, but he's going to test them first. So he treats them like strangers. We even see that he speaks roughly to them. Now, in verse 9, we get the detail that Joseph remembered his dreams. He sees his brothers bowing down to him. He remembers his two dreams from Genesis chapter 37. And it may be that he remembered that here in that moment, only 10 of his brothers are bowing down to him. So you may read this at first and think, dream's fulfilled. But the dreams weren't 10 brothers bowing down to him. It was 11 brothers, and it was mom and dad. It was a whole family bowing down to him. So maybe he remembered here in this moment, okay, wait a minute, this isn't the fulfilling of this. This wasn't exactly what the dream said. And so he moves forward. I think that helps us understand why he wants to hear about Benjamin, why he wants to hear about dad and how he's doing. Uh, This may make sense even as to why he did not reveal his identity to them at first. He wanted the truth. If they knew this was Joseph, did they still hate him? Were they still angry at him? Would he never get to the truth if they realized this was their brother Joseph? Would he not learn about Benjamin and his dad and how they were doing? He wanted to know. He wanted to find out. In this section, verses 7 through 11, Joseph begins to rattle off questions, almost like an interrogator, to get the truth out of them. His interrogation of them repeatedly accusing them of being spies. This gets them on the defensive, and therefore, is kind of a wise tactic to get the truth out. It gets them to reveal more of the truth. They they defend themselves, first off, in verse 11, saying that we are honest men interesting description. They reveal in verse 13, though, that they come from 12 brothers. All right, they're starting to tell the truth. The youngest is with their father. That was true. And they even mention, and one is no more. Now, sure, they may have thought he was dead, but for 20 years, they were probably saying that. They knew what they did was wrong, right? They they knew that this was something they did that was wrong. They may not have been repented over or remorseful, but they knew it was wrong, that's why they hid it. That's why they deceived their father, and they would just use the phrase flippantly probably, and one is no more. They knew what happened. They knew what they did. Well, Joseph uses this moment to find out that his father and his younger brother are alive. Uh, Think about who Joseph most wanted to see, not the 10 guys who tried to murder him. That wasn't the people he most wanted to see, the ten who, who sold him into slavery. He wanted to see Dad, and he wanted to see Benjamin. Was Benjamin okay? Did they treat Benjamin the way that they treated him? He wanted to know. He wanted to find out. Are his brothers really being honest? So he comes up with a test To figure all this out. In verse 15 and 16, this is the test. How they could prove they were honest men. Look there in verse 15 and 16. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And so he throws them in prison for three days, which became the Jewish time of, of reckoning. We see in this chapter that they needed to be tested. They presented themselves as honest men. Honest means upright. Honest means righteous. They said they were honest men. But were they? Think about all that we've seen. I mean, if you ask Joseph, hey, come up with a hundred words to describe your brothers. Honest wouldn't come anywhere near the top 100 wouldn't even cross his mind. I mean, we have seen that we have their lives recorded in the pages of Genesis. Back in Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi, they, they ruthlessly slaughtered the men of Shechem's city. Reuben had an ugly scene, a disgraceful act with his father's concubine. Have they changed over the years? I mean, how evil are they now? have they looked at this evil and, and repented of it? And did they still hate Joseph and want to kill him? Like, were they still a threat to him? Joseph needed to know. Remember the last time he saw them, they were heartless, they were willing to kill him, and then sold him into slavery. So he wasn't just looking at his next of kin, his, his brothers. He, were look, he was looking at men who had tried to murder him. This is a test to see what kind of men they really are. Twenty years had passed. Were they really honest now? Were they really faithful? That Hebrew word for for test, what it means is to examine, to prove the value or the worth of something. He wanted to test them. Due to their past actions, there was a need for that. Now, this may have all seemed like vengeance at first. I mean, he's lashing out to them. He's speaking roughly to them, throwing them in prison. But we see that in this, he actually shows his brother's mercy. While they were confined in prison, he changes the plan. We don't get all the details why from Moses, the narrator of Genesis, but we see that that Joseph changes the plan. The initial plan was that only one of them would go back to fetch Benjamin. But he first, before he changes the plan, says in verse 18, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, Joseph could have had them killed and executed, but he wants them to live, and he shows them mercy, and he gives them the motivation behind his mercy. He says... I fear God, and there's an implication there, an implied question, do you? We're well, listening to an Egyptian talk about God, and I was using the, the general term for God, Elohim, Creator God, but nonetheless, he's talking about God. We haven't seen the brothers talking about God really much at all, right, at all. We don't get any sense that they're interested in God, but here's this Egyptian saying, I fear God. And in verse 19, Joseph lays out the test one of them now will stay in prison. That will not be Simeon. He's kind of a type of, of hostage. The others will return to their homeland in Canaan and then come back to Egypt with Benjamin. By keeping one in prison and letting the others return, this is an act of mercy. How would just one of them returning be able to take the grain that was necessary to feed the family back in Canaan? But nine of them could do that. They could take grain back. It was an act of mercy that Joseph was showing to his family. But notice it also uh, shrewdly puts the brothers in the same situation they were in when they threw Joseph into a pit. Would they leave their one brother behind? Would they take the grain and the money and run and not come back? Had they really changed? Were they honest men? Were they faithful? Could they be relied upon? Did they care about life Created in the image of God. Well, this had an impact on them. We, We see a connection there in verse 21. We can see that they thought back to what they did to Joseph and they admit their guilt. They look back 20 years prior to what they did with Joseph, they remember him begging. So we get a detail here. He was begging. He was crying out for help to be rescued from the pit. Back then, they didn't care about that. They just sat down, they ate their meal, and ignored their brother's need of rescue and him crying out. They recall that rather than feeling compassion like they should have and turning away from evil to rescue their brother in the moment, they did not listen. They look back and they admit they were wrong. Reuben even chimes in in verse 22 And specifically calls this sin. Not just, well, we did something we should have done. Ah, you know, we made a mistake. We probably should have made a better decision. Oh, sin. Those phrases aren't confession. Sin, saying this is sin, it means you've transgressed against a holy God. You've done what is evil in His sight. He even uses this language back from Genesis chapter 9 of a reckoning for blood. A reckoning for His blood, which points to God's judgment against sin now we get the detail here they had been speaking through an interpreter they didn't know Joseph could understand their conversation but Joseph hears them admit their guilt and he's so moved by it that he weeps what this test showed Joseph so far the brothers he remembered evil men who did evil to him they were admitting their guilt This seems to be a moment of transformation in the brothers' hearts. They recognize they were guilty and deserving of this distress that had come upon them. They see God's hand in all of this, knowing that they were deserving of judgment. So back to that question, is it ever good to feel guilty? He's called to to guilt-free living, of just maybe ignoring that you've done wrong Things. Which, by the way, that's a lot of the work we have to do in evangelism with those around us. Far too often, people just hear this lie, well, you're a good person. And good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. So if you're really bad like Hitler, well, yeah, you've got something to worry about. Most of us aren't as bad as Hitler. Uh, we've done some wrong things. Sure, we acted up in college. Sure, maybe we weren't too honest at work and didn't show integrity, but we're not as bad as this person so we kind of draw the line in a convenient place and say well I guess I'm good enough on my own that's the common message of the world good people go to heaven bad people go to hell but that's not the Christian message the Christian message tells us there's no one good but Jesus and only forgiven people go to heaven and the only way to be forgiven is to feel guilty for your sin and therefore to turn to the right place you can feel bad for your sin turn to the wrong place you can turn to the mirror well I'll just try harder you can turn to a false god, like what the Egyptians were turning to. They, they, they were praying. They had some sort of religious commitment, but they weren't praying to the right god, the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, if guilt would lead us to repent of our sin against the one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, that guilt will be directed the right way. It will be well-placed. And when you put your, your guilt at the feet of Jesus... With a godly sorrow, true contrition and humility in your heart, seeking forgiveness of your sins against God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross in your place as a substitute, dying the death that you and I deserve because of our sin against God, trusting in His perfect death and in His resurrection from the dead, the only one who ever died and resurrected from the dead as proof that His payment for sin on the cross is acceptable to the God who created us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say for the world. It doesn't say for everybody. It doesn't say for everyone who's ever lived. There's a condition, there's a qualification for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning your faith is in Jesus. You've repented of your sin and put your faith in Him. We have a nation full of people that may call themselves Christians, but they've never repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe you got sprinkled as an infant and you think you're a Christian because of that. Well, that doesn't mean that you have faith in Jesus. You see, guilt is something we need. If there's a godly sorrow that would produce repentance in our life, repentance means a change of mind. It means that our mind has changed, that we don't think our sin is just something that's, well, it's just common, and everybody sins, no one's perfect. But we have a change of mind about our sin, meaning we agree with God in His Word, that our sin is an abomination in His sight. If we agree with God in His Word and repent of our sin and turn away from that sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sin. And in the rest of your life, spent as a Christian, should be feeling guilty over sin you were presently committing, relieved of that past guilt. We may look back and be ashamed of things we did before we knew Christ, but be reminded, God, you've forgiven me of that. You've forgiven my sin as far as the east is from the west. And the sin that I presently struggle with today, I want to keep repenting and keep submitting myself and keep walking in forgiveness that comes from knowing Jesus. If you've come this morning, you've never done that. If you've not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, You don't know God. You are not in Christ. You should not expect to go to heaven when you die. I don't say these things to be ugly. I don't say these things out of an arrogant heart. We say these things. We profess this faith as a church because we love you, and we want you to know the truth. And if you would submit to that truth and put your faith in Jesus Christ today, you too can know the joy of being forgiven of your sin. I hope you talked to somebody who brought you today. I hope you talk to one of our pastors at the door. I hope you talk more with someone here who's a Christian who can share more with you about what it would look like to repent of your sin today and trust in Jesus. Well, this test showed Joseph, the brothers he remembered, evil men who did evil to him, that they were admitting their guilt. Maybe there was a change. Well, Joseph sends them off, providing them with bags of grain. He ordered his servants put every man's money back in his sack of grain. And he sent them off, testing them, waiting and watching to see what would happen. In the final part of this chapter, in verses 26 through 38, we see a third scene. Faithfulness threatened by fear. Faithfulness threatened by fear. On the way home, one of the brothers opens up the sack of grain to his surprise. He sees all the money that he's paid for the grain was there. And they interpret this in verse 28 as something God's done. They see the hand of God in this. They say, what is this that God has done to us? They see this as a sign that God is judging them. Now now think about this. If there was money in their sack of grain, the implication would be they stole that grain. They didn't pay what was due it. In other words, it was a severe form of shoplifting because it was against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they looked at this and they thought, we did pay. How did this happen? This is back in this sacrament. We, we paid for what we got. And they see God's hand in this. They see this as a sign that God is judging them for their past evil and they are rightly filled with fear. Understanding that if this is discovered, they would be executed. They'd be wanted men. They think they're in big trouble for having that money. And this presents an opportunity for them, a temptation really. Take the money. Take the grain. Stay in Canaan and leave their brother behind in Egypt, just like they did with Joseph. But in verses 29 through 34, they stay the course. They tell their father, Jacob, what happened. They don't tell them every single detail, but they tell them the main idea of what went on there. They break the news that they were directed to bring Benjamin back to Egypt in order to get their brother Simeon back and to be able to trade in that land. Yet the fear grows even more As they emptied their sacks of grain, and they see every man's bundle of money there in his sack of grain. And Jacob loses it in verse 36, saying, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. It's really a a self-focused response. And Reuben steps in and offers up a terrible idea, right? Putting the lives of his two sons on the line but Jacob wasn't having it. Though his response was one of real self-focus, this feels all too familiar to him. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin like he did Jacob, excuse me, like he did Joseph. This lie, this little family secret, it was getting in the way of them physically surviving. The chapter ends us on a cliffhanger of sorts while they returned to Egypt Will they pass the test and prove to be honest and faithful? They have their grain. They didn't have to pay for it since their money was returned back in the sacks of grain. And their father, Jacob, doesn't want them to go. It could just be a moment to say, sorry, Simeon, we hope everything turns out well with you, like whatever happened to Joseph. We're going to move on about our lives. This chapter leaves us on a cliffhanger, but we read Acts chapter 7 this morning. When Stephen used this particular episode to show how God was with them and how God maintained and helped them endure through these challenging trials and suffering, this story, it shows us even at this point where we're left on a cliff of God's good providence, his faithfulness to his promise, that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And even though we know the end of the story of what happens here, at least if you read ahead, you know what it is. If you're a Christian, you've likely heard this before. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can read ahead and you can know what happens in this story. They didn't know what was happening. They were left on the cliff. And you and I, though our stories are sure, if you put your faith in Jesus, there is eternal security found in Christ. We're kind of left on a cliff every day. What's going to happen the rest of the day? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen this next week? What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with the physical pain, the terrible situation I'm in? What's going to happen in my suffering? What's going to happen with this person that's seeking to do harm to me and do evil to my life? We regularly find ourselves at that cliffhanger. And the story of Joseph reminds us, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you submitted your life to the faithful God, all the evil, all the trouble we see around us God's at work for our good. His good providence shows us his faithfulness. We can look back and see his faithfulness in our lives. And his good providence shapes us to be faithful, to keep believing, to keep submitting, to keep worshiping, to keep obeying. Maybe we'd be reminded of his good providence. Ultimately, that he's shown us in his son, Jesus In Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. May we rest in who he is for us and how much he's loved us. Let's pray.